guys may be seated. If you text at all, and, and who among us doesn't, uh, then you know what these are. If you're on social media at all, and who among us isn't, then, then you know, you've seen these, you may not know what they mean. If you have teenagers, they've texted these to you, and you didn't know what they were talking about, but you've seen them. They're called emojis. I, they're a way to add some style to your texting and social media game, and, and a way to indicate emotion and intent to whatever you, you just sent. Because the pro- problem with the written word is you can't always tell, are they kidding? Are they mad? You ever read something, you got a text, a social media comment, an email, and wondered, are they being sarcastic? Is that what they really think? Did I make them angry? Enter emojis. Because with one simple winky face, then you can let them know. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, right? If it's too exhausting to type okay or I like that, thumbs up emoji. That's all you need. If you can't spell congratulations, even with spell check, give them a hand clap emoji, a trophy emoji. There's so many options to clarify what you're saying and how you intended to be understood. Now, let's be honest. Some of you are serial emoji abusers. You use way too many of them. You will be punished. Just like some of you are serial hashtag abusers, all right? We'll find you. You will be punished. But used in the right amount, emojis are a great thing. Now, that's what we're going to talk about in this series, because emojis represent emotion. We're going to talk about five different emotions that are good and right and healthy. Did you know there's even an emoji Bible When you get home, Google Emoji Bible. Who am I kidding? Half of you are Googling it right now, right? You'll you'll tune back in in about five minutes. When you Google Emoji Bible, you can put your verse in, whatever verse you want, and it will translate it into emojis, the whole verse. I don't recommend this for like your devotional time or like deep Bible study. We're not going to have an Emoji Bible small group. Sorry if that's what you're looking for. Emojis are, are... are everywhere. Um, How it relates to us is that God created us with emotions. He created us to experience a range of emotions. And and if God created us that way, if this was God's gift to us, then it must be good. Emotions must be a good thing. And And I know emotions can get out of whack. We can be too emotional. Emotions can go crazy, right? I know there's that potential. But But there must be a right way to experience emotions that God intended that's actually a a blessing to our life. I mean, emotions add to our our experience of life, the, the color and the depth of our experience of relationships and circumstances. The fact that we we can be extremely happy. That's a great thing. Even even experience sadness over things that we should be sad about, to get excited, to experience the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. That's a good thing that God intended 
for us to experience. And God intended for it to add so much to our life. Even God himself, if you read the Bible, even God himself experiences emotions. He, he is described as being full of joy. He is described at times as being angry. He is described at times as being compassionate. Those, those sort of emotions are attributed to God. And there's a, there's a lot of debate over, okay, how exactly does God experience emotions versus the way we experience? And what are the similarities and differences? And what does that do to our theology of God? Great discussion. We're not going to get into that discussion. What I know is when I read the Bible, there is the picture of a joyful, loving God who experiences emotions. And now, God experiences the right emotion at the right time in the right measure always. In other words, He experiences emotions perfectly. We're not able to always do that. Our emotions aren't always perfectly measured for the perfect circumstance. But we serve a God that experiences emotions, and He has created us to experience emotions. So, next five weeks, that's what we're going to talk about. And we're going to start with the heart emotion, right? We've all seen the heart emotion. You've sent heart emotions to people. Um, uh, you've seen it on T-shirts. If you haven't, just noticed T-shirts this week. Everybody hearts something right now, right? People heart pizza, and they heart coffee, and they heart football. And some people heart their churches, like some churches print, I heart my church, uh, th- that sort of thing. We, we heart just about everything. Which is great because the Bible has lots to say about love. As a matter of fact, almost 700 verses, almost almost 700 times, the Bible talks about love. We're going to read all 700 today, so kind of be ready for that. No, we're not going to do that. The Bible talks about love all the time. The, The difference is the way the Bible speaks about love is really not the way we talk about love. Just in general, like, like in society. Uh, we tend to talk about loving things and hearting things uh, like pizza and football, right? We kind of have two, two different love discussions in our culture. One is that we love things, love pizza, football, movie. I love that movie. I love that book. And we love things. That's sort of one direction we talk about loving And then the other direction is we quickly slide into the romantic love, right? Insert bachelorette here, right? We talk about romantic love and loving another person uh, in a romantic sort of way, and not exclusively. I don't mean to say exclusively, but primarily, those are the two streams. I love things, and then there's the romantic love. Those are the least talked about things in the Bible, those two categories, when it comes to love. When the Bible talks to us about loving things, it's always warning us against that. Right? The Bible's always saying, be careful when you love things, because that's not good. It's not good for your heart. It's not, not good for the direction. It's not good for your relationship. Don't love things. And then the Bible, although it speaks of romantic love, uh, at times very poetically, at times, at times very graphically, it, it's not the primary discussion of love at all in the Bible. Another thing about the Bible's thoughts on loves, uh, on love, it, it's it's qualitatively different from our discussions. And here's what I mean: when we talk about loving things, 
What we're really saying is that thing pleases me. That's what we mean by I love pizza, right? We mean pizza pleases me. Pizza I, tastes good, right? Fills me up. I love pizza because it pleases me. When we say I love a movie, what we mean is I like the way it ended. It pleased me. I like the characters. It made me feel a certain way. It's a very me-directed sense of love. That thing did something for me. I love coffee. I like the way it keeps me from murdering people in the morning, right? That sort of, it does something for me. And even when we speak of romantic love, often the discussion, insert bachelorette here, often the discussion is that person pleases me. I like the way they look. I like the way I feel when I'm with them. I like what they do for me. A lot of our, not saying exclusively when it comes to romantic love, but a lot of our discussion in our culture about romantic love is not that much different from I love pizza. They please me, therefore I love them. When we open the Bible, though, we don't find that discussion of love at all. Love is never something that's directed to what I get or what I'm pleased by or what helps me. Love, really, in the Bible, doesn't even start with me. It's not initially, at least, about me. It's about where love ultimately comes from, which is God. In a very simple statement in the New Testament, the Bible says God is love. If you want to understand love, if you want to be able to love, understand this, God is love. And in Him, in God, we find this vast reservoir of the depths and beauty and complexity of what love is really supposed to be like, a limitless, immeasurable love. This is one of the characteristics of God's love. God's love is immeasurable. Like you can't quantify how much or how high or, or, or how full. The, the Bible uses uh, phrases like God's abounding in love. It's just all of this love. And songwriters have tried to capture it in their, in their lyrics for centuries. Here, here's a really old lyric. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. And then this description, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free Rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. And this author, this is hundreds of years ago, he writes this lyric to say God's love is like this ocean and these waves that are sweeping over me. And every time there's another wave coming and I could never go all the way to the bottom of it. And I could never swim to the side of it or get out of it because it's so massive. Uh, another more recent lyric, how deep. The Father's love for us, how vast, beyond all measure. I mean, to speak of love correctly is to begin with the idea that there is an immeasurable reservoir of love that resides in God. Paul picks up this idea in the book of Ephesians. He writes, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. It was Paul's description. 
He's like, it just goes on and on. I just wish you could understand how high it is and deep it is and how long it is and how you're never going to get to the edge of it and you're never going to outswim it and you're never going to pull yourself up onto the beach of God's love because there's no beach of God's love. There's just more and more and wave and wave after wave. And in the very next verse, verse 19, he writes, and I want you to know this love. And then immediately he says, that surpasses knowledge. Which is an interesting thing to challenge people with. I want you to know this. You're never going to know it. It's like too much. I want you to know as much as you can. I want you to swim in as much of it as you possibly can. I want you to understand as much of it as you possibly can. But when you think you've seen all of God's love, you haven't. There's more. It's vast, immeasurable, boundless, and free. Another thing about God's love. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on whether I measure up or not, how good I am or whether I'm not good enough. The the Hebrew word for that gets translated in the Old Testament as love is a a multi-layered word. It's not just translated as love. It's also translated as grace, sometimes as mercy, often as compassion or loving kindness. Basically, the the Hebrew understanding of God's love is that it was all of these things wrapped in in one. His mercy, His grace, His love, His kindness, His compassion, His gentleness, all of that encompassed His love. And and the idea was, the word is used when love is expressed from a more powerful being to a less powerful being. It's not a 50-50. Sometimes we think of that. It's not like an equal measure. Like, we're on equal ground, and so we love each other. No, there's a being that doesn't have to love the other being. There's a a being that is greater and more powerful and more awesome. And they don't have to love the being that is lower than them, but they choose to. In human relationships, sometimes it's used to describe a benevolent ruler or king. Like, when the king is good to his people, compassionate, loving to his subjects, if you will... That's the word. Not because he has to, because he rules over them. Because he chooses to. This is the word that's used to describe God's love for us. He doesn't have to. He's not compelled to. But he wants to. He's higher. We're lower. We're never going to measure up. We're never going to earn this love. And so if... If there's ever been a time in your life where you've wondered, could God love me? Am I good enough? Have I done enough good things? The answer is no. Welcome to the club because none of us are that. None of us deserve it. None of us are good enough. None of us have performed well enough to receive God's love. But our creator looks at us and just says, I want to love you. With this vast love that I have, I want to give it to you. His love is not based on our performances. His love is forever. God's love is forever. The the Bible uses phrases like, it's an everlasting love. Often the Bible speaks of that. God's love is an everlasting love. Or this one that's used often in the Psalms. His love endures forever. Songs have been written with that phrase. Psalm 136. It's, It's a sentence followed by, his love endures forever. And a sentence followed by, his love endures forever. You should read it this afternoon. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. You don't get to an edge. You don't get to an end. You never exhaust it. He doesn't give it and then take it away. 
He doesn't say, look, my love is going to be put on you, but because of what you did last week, I'm going to take my love away from you. No, it, it never happens. It's an everlasting love. The Bible uses the phrase an unfailing love. Never once does it give up. Never once does it quit. This is one of the big differences about God's love and the love we see in our society. It's especially the I love pizza, I love people type of love that we're talking about. Because we all know that if our love is based on someone or something pleasing me, then when that someone or something stops pleasing me, I stop loving. We say that you love a particular restaurant until the menu changes, right? Or until the chef changes, or until the owner changes. And now it's completely different. It's the same name, it's the same restaurant, but everything's completely different. It no longer pleases me. I no, no longer love that restaurant. And, and, and even in marriages, we, we all have friends or relatives that, at some point decided, you don't please me anymore. I don't love you anymore. This is not the love that comes from God because His love is everlasting love. It endures forever, unlike much of the love that we talk about. Another characteristic of His love, God's love is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. In other words, it's not just a mushy statement. It's not just a hashtag. It's not even just a heart emoji or a Hallmark card or a t-shirt. God says, I love you with this immeasurable love. And just so you know it, I'm going to give everything for you. I mean, the ultimate display of his love, he sends his son to live a perfect life, die in our place, rise again. Because, again, it's not a feely, mushy love. It's a, I love you enough to go to any extent so that you could experience my love. Jesus is talking to his disciples shortly before he's going to be crucified. And uh, he says to them, the greatest example of love, the greatest example of love is that one person would lay down their life for another. Not, Not that they would send them a tweet They would actually give of themselves, sacrifice of themselves. And this is what God's love did. Motivated by love. Familiar familiar verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's motivated by God's love. So here we are as God's creation the beneficiaries receiving this perfect, overwhelming love from God. And and since He has freely given us His perfect love, here's what His message is to us. I want you to give your imperfect love to others. Since I've given my perfect love to you, I want you to take your imperfect love and give it away to other people. Because the reality is we can never love as perfectly as God loves. We don't have the ability to do that. What we can do is we can say, God, to the best of my ability, I'm going to try to love like you love. And I'm not going to get it right all the time. And it's not going to be perfect like yours is. But I'm going to love other people because of the way you've loved me. And all throughout the Bible, this command is given. Not just in the New Testament when Jesus comes along. Even in Leviticus, and when we think of the book of Leviticus, we often think harsh and, 
and punishment and commands and really weird rules and laws. This is Leviticus chapter 19. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. In Leviticus. And he says specifically, don't bear a grudge against anyone among your people. In other words, people in the nation of Israel, people that are in the family. Love them the way you love yourself. But then before he gets to the end of chapter 19, he says, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. In other words, there's no prejudice here. If, if they're a part of your group, love them. If they're not a part of your group, Love them because he finishes that verse with love them as yourself. If they're in or they're out. If they're like you, they're not like you. Love your neighbor as yourself. So how do you do that? What does that look like? I mean, if it's not a t-shirt, what is it? If, it, if it's not a tweet, what, what, how does that look in my life? Luke chapter 10. Jesus is having a, a conversation <clears throat> with a, a religious leader, and they both agreed that the way to fulfill the, all the commandments of the Bible, all the commandments of God, is to love God with your heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. They both agree with that. Jesus says, yes, you're right. That's the way you do it. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then the other guy kind of presses Jesus and says, okay, well, tell me this. Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells what for some of us is a familiar story. We call it the Good Samaritan. There's a guy going along. He gets beaten up. He gets robbed, left for dead. Three people come by. A priest, religious leader. A Levite, also a religious leader. Both of them pass the guy and don't help. Matter of fact, they go all the way to the other side of the street. They try to get as far away. They try not to make eye contact, pretend like they didn't see it. And they go all the way around. And then the Samaritan comes. And adding to the tension of the story, the Samaritan's the bad guy. Like Jesus' audience, they don't like Samaritans. Culturally, they, they don't get along with Samaritans. So in Jesus' story, the good guys are the bad guys and the bad guys are the good guys. That's how Jesus works. And so the Samaritan comes along and bandages him up and takes him to get healed, to, uh, takes him to get uh, medical attention and pays for it and says, if, if you need to do anything else, I'll pay for it when I come back. And then Jesus looks at the guy and says, okay, who loved his neighbor? And it's pretty obvious. Which one of them loved their neighbor? It was the guy that did something. It was the guy that actually helped. It was the guy that actually stopped. It's not the guy that knew the great commandment. It's not the guy that could quote, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. It wasn't that guy. It was the guy who actually did something that was loving. Jesus said, there you go. That's who your neighbor is. Whoever needs help, whoever needs to be loved, them, help them, and you will be loving your neighbor. C.S. Lewis writes about this brilliantly in Mere Christianity. In one section, he's talking about this idea of loving your neighbor and, and how to go about it. And, and, and Lewis says, don't waste time trying to stir up a feeling for other people. Don't waste time trying to have a certain emotion toward the person that you're supposed to love. Instead, just do what you would do if you love them. 
Like if you loved them, what would you do for them? How would you treat them? How would you help them? Do that. That's loving them. Not necessarily feeling something for another person. You see, love is not how I feel about another person. Love is what I do for another person. I mean, love in action, love lived out. It's not how I feel about you. It's what I do for you. And yes, you can do some of these things and not love, but you you really can't love and not do them. 1 Corinthians 13, well known for its discussion of love and what love is like. And it never once mentions butterflies in your stomach or weak knees or sweaty palms. It doesn't mention any of that. You know what it does mention? Be patient with them. If you you love them, be patient with them. If you love them, be kind to them. If you love them, protect them. If you love them, hope for the best for them. In other words, if you love them, do something for them. Never give up on them. That's how you love somebody. You don't love somebody by feeling a certain way. You you express love by doing the things that they need for you to do. At the the end of that chapter, Paul says, or the beginning, right before the chapter starts, Paul says, look, this is the most excellent way. It's to live love, not feeling, but doing. At the end of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is well, it's love. If you want to pick the number one, it's love. Living out love. One of, one of my favorite verses, Galatians 5, 6, Paul writes, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's it. At the end of the day, what's going to matter is how you lived out your faith by showing love. If you need a scorecard, If you need some sort of, how well did I do today? Just at the end of every day, ask, how well did I live out my faith by expressing love? How well did I live out my faith by expressing love? Paul says, if you do that, then you're winning. Because that is what really counts the most. Now, the truth is, that's hard, right? That's harder than sending an emoji. It's harder than wearing a t-shirt. That's harder than tweeting or Snapchatting. That I would have to actually get involved for the good of someone else in order to love them. And the other problem we have is we've all been hurt before when we've tried to do this. We've all tried to extend ourselves on behalf of someone else. We've all tried to do something good and we got rejected. Our heart got broken. We got mistreated. People did not receive our expression of love in the way that we wanted them to receive. I mean, it would be nice if you showed love to people and they just magically responded in this wonderful way. And I mean, that that makes for a nice thought. It just doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes our attempts to love leads to us getting heartbroken. Sometimes when that happens, it's very tempting to say, I'm done. I'm not putting myself out there anymore. I'm not going to extend myself anymore. I'm just going to live my little life. I'm going to stay out of everybody's life, everybody else's business. I'm just going to keep to me. I'm going to look out for me and mine. I'm reading 
uh, a book called Creativity, Inc. It's by Ed Catmull. He's one of the guys who founded uh, Pixar. And so it's about how their, the company, the, the animation studio, got started and how it kind of evolved and in those early days. He's telling the story uh, about the time they were making Toy Story 2. And they had kind of run into a dead end and they had to let some people go and bring some new people around the table and rework the story because there just wasn't, there wasn't enough interest in the story. There wasn't enough tension, which is what creates interest in any story. There wasn't enough tension in the story that they felt like people could relate to. And so around this new table, they came up with that new storyline. They came up with that new tension and it was the choice that Woody was going to have to make as to whether to, to go to the museum or stay with Andy, right? You, you know, if you don't know Toy Story, what are you doing with your life, really? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's my guy right over there. Exactly. So here's what he said. He, Woody... Woody could stay with someone he loves, knowing that he will eventually be discarded, or he could flee to a world where he could be pampered forever, but without the love that he was built for. And I know we're talking about toys. I, I get it. Stay with me. The reason that worked in the movie, the reason adults were drawn into that storyline is because everybody can go, oh yeah, I've I've thought about that. I've thought at times it would be easier not to care, not to love. I thought at times in my life it would be easier to choose the easy way out because love is costly. But you were created for love. You weren't created to wall ourselves off from the hurts of the world or the people of the world or the needs of the world. We were created to love, albeit imperfectly because we aren't God, but we were created to love. We were created to receive a perfect love from a perfect God, poured into our hearts, deep and immeasurable, and then turn and express that love in the way that we can to the people that are around us. You, you were created for that. So don't run from it. Don't hide yourself from it. Don't decide at some point in your life, I'm, just, I'm not going to do that again. This is what you were created for. You see, at the end of the day, God hearts you. So go heart somebody else this week. Let's pray. God, we live in a world that I don't want to be too critical or too harsh, but I just think we're confused about this love thing. And we talk about it in terms that you don't really talk about it in. We use it in ways that the Bible doesn't really use it in. I, I know what we mean. Hey, we like pizza. But love, properly understood, flows from the heart of our Creator more vast and immense and overwhelming than we will ever fully know. And there are people all around us every day 
that need to be touched by that. And they're going to get touched by the love of God as it imperfectly comes out of us towards them. That's what we're created for. We're created to be loved by you and created to love others. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.